Hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another exciting episode of Adventures in DevOps. I'm your host for the day, Jonathan Hall, and here in the virtual studio, I have with me Jillian Rowe. Hello. And Will Button. What's going on? And today, we are going to talk about DevOps anti-patterns. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. And cargo culting and all the things you should never do, or maybe not never, but at least sometimes shouldn't do in DevOps. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So who wants to kick us off? What's your favorite, or shall I say least favorite? Demo. Before we jump into that, yeah, you threw out the term cargo culting, and I've not heard that before, so what is that? That's a great question, because it's, I think it's an Americanism, which makes me surprised that you haven't heard it. Um, yeah, but I'm a redneck, so. Think, okay, fair enough. <laughs> so the term cargo culting, uh, for anybody who's either a redneck or not born in the U.S. of A., I, I believe it was World War II, where the U.S. occupied some islands in somewhere. Why don't I just look it up, and then I won't have to be guessing. That's too, actually, you know, straightforward for the likes of, of us. <laughs> Yeah, so it was in the Pacific Islands uh, during World War II. The U.S. Uh, sort of took over the islands as a military base or an air base in particular for some of their war operations, whatever that was. And in the process, they brought things that the locals appreciated, like chocolate and food and who knows whatever else. Well, then the, when the war was over, of course, they left. And these indigenous people, having not been familiar with the modern culture didn't know what to make of this, and they wanted the good things to come back again. So they built these religious cults trying to win the favor of the gods, so to speak, by building airplanes out of branches and, and leaves and things like that. And they would like build these, and you go to Wikipedia or Google, you can find pictures of these like life-size aircraft that were built out of branches and, and trees and stuff. It's their, it was their, literally their cargo cult. It was a cult designed to attract the cargo that the military brought. So that's where the term cargo cult comes from. <laughs> I love it. So if your build continuously fails going to production, you should build a replica CICD infrastructure out of branches and leaves to win favor with the deploy gods. Exactly. Yeah, or just start making sacrifices right off the bat. <laughs> That's the way that I feel some days are going, like, which god do I need to sacrifice? You know, which child needs to get this thing working? It was a joke, everybody. I'm not going to sacrifice. <laughs> Never be too careful on the internet, you guys. It's a joke until it works, and then you're like, nah, I'm sticking with this. Okay, so anti-patterns and cargo culting. Anti-patterns and cargo culting. Favorite one 
I mentioned this before we started recording. Like one of mine is logging into the AWS console and point and click your way to infrastructure success. And um, I think Jonathan, you you said that you agreed with that, but it wasn't really straightforward. And and I think that's true because I I do use the AWS console quite a bit in scenarios where I'm working with a new AWS product or one that I haven't worked with in a while. And I think it's helpful to use the console to build like your dev version of that to see what all dependencies and components are in this AWS product that you may not be aware that you should be configuring. So I think it's helpful to build it with the console and get a working version of it and then try to reverse engineer it into infrastructure as code. But once you're, I think once you're talking about staging and prod deployments, that's where I think that uh, point and click infrastructure is an anti-pattern. Yeah, so, so my view on that is that the console is useful when you're exploring or learning something new. But yes, as soon as you have anything that is ready for production, it should be an infrastructure's code. Of course, not at many teams, and even myself sometimes, I'm guilty of not doing this. In fact, just today I was playing with Google Cloud and I was doing it on all on the console. It, it was for something that didn't really matter. It wasn't really a production service. It was just some a storage bucket for some CI caching. But you know, I, the, the whole time I was like, I probably should do this with some infrastructure as code, but I didn't. Yeah. So while like, I don't know, I, I have some mixed feelings about that because on the one hand, you know, I think it's much better to have everything in infrastructure as code because then you have a very clear like audit and history and all that. But on the other hand, to me, a lot of DevOps and a lot of my job is giving tools back to the users and back to the people who are going to be using them, which in my case is pretty much always a data scientist. And if I'm like, well, no, you're not allowed to use the console because even my very perfectly reasonable reasons, that's still taking things away from them, which I feel like is kind of contrary to my mission in life, which is to make HPC accessible for bioinformaticians. They should be able to go to the console and click around. But I also don't want to have to deal with it when they go to the console and click around. So I'm I'm very conflicted over this. What do you guys think? So I think ideally, the, the, the ideal scenario here would be that they have an easy to use interface that produces in infrastructure code. So you still have that auditability. And you could kind of, I mean, you could probably sort of figure that out with Terraform. Like you could, you could have Terraform read the current state and, and copy that locally. It's not perfect and it doesn't work in every situation. But I, I think the ideal scenario would be a, a front end that probably doesn't exist to your infrastructure as code that, that would be easy enough for them to use, if that makes sense. Not, I'm not saying that that's your pro- the solution. That's the ideal that like maybe someday in 20 years we'll have. I kind of have that halfway built for just some bioinformatics stuff. But um, yeah, so that is what I try to do is that like it, they go through and click their options and be like, okay, I want A, B, and C. And then that renders a Terraform module with cookie cutter because, you know, I'm super fancy over here. And then and then just goes through, runs it, and then sticks it in an S3 bucket. And I'm like, there we go. We have infrastructure as code that the people can be using. Yeah, the project I was just recently on, we did something very similar. It was on their own hosted Kubernetes platform in their data center. But we built a UI that allowed them to define, you know, how much memory they wanted, how many GPUs they wanted, different things like that. And then when they clicked go, it uh, sent a message off to RabbitMQ where we had a task runner that we built that took their parameters and merged that into a Kubernetes manifest and deployed that Kubernetes manifest. And so everything was, the infrastructure's code was contained in the task runner itself. And then it it used Kubernetes 
namespaces and quotas to limit their limit what they could and, and couldn't do as far as resource utilization in the cluster. But yeah, it was all homegrown. Seems like once you get there, it is it is like very very specific. Like for for the kind of things that I'm doing, it's all like batch and HPC, and it's this very peculiar corner of the internet. So I don't know how applicable that is. I do think some of the AWS services are moving in that direction. Like I want to say that um the AWS managed airflow, when you go to the AWS console interface and you click the buttons, when you click those buttons, it does actually render uh, a CloudFormation template in the background and then your CloudFormation template gets saved, you know, where AWS saves those. So then that is something. You can still have drift and things with the CloudFormation templates. So. Yeah, AWS WAF does that as well. It generates CloudFormation and you can go look at your CloudFormation stack that it created. The Amplify Studio does that too, which now I'm like, I don't know, I'm always kind of very much afraid of vendor buy-in, even though I'm pretty much already there with AWS anyways, because I haven't really bothered to learn any of the cloud platforms, any of the other cloud platforms. Vendor lock-in, right? Not buy-in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, buy, lock, whatever. Yeah, lock-in, I guess. But yeah, so it, so it does seem like they are kind of moving in that direction now that I'm thinking of it, because yeah, Amplify, Airflow, the the service that you just said. So I don't know how soon before AWS codes will fall out of a job. What do you guys think? Hopefully soon. I'm tired of working. <laughs> no, I think that's kind of an interesting side point. I don't think they'll code us out of a job. I think it will just move us to doing different things. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely not worried about that. I mean, there there may be a day in the future where we don't write Terraform or CloudFormation templates. But when I look at all the things it takes to build, manage, and scale a company, like I've got a long to-do list, so if that particular task goes away, I've still got other stuff I need to be focused on. No, no doubt. Yeah. No, so, so what are your um? Yeah, what are your uh, anti patterns, Jonathan? Yeah, so one I have that really kind of drives me nutty is it's, it's more a cargo cult thing, but you know they're they're closely related, and that is installing Jenkins or any other automation tool in and thinking that means you have continuous integration. Continuous integration is not a tool; it's not a service. It's a behavior. <laughs> just, you know, like when people spend a lot of money and they're like, now we're doing X. And I'm like, no, you just you you just bought the thing. Like you spent a couple million on those microscopes, but you're still not doing high content screening because you actually have to use the microscopes or, you know, like something like that. Right. It, just, yeah. it just reminded me of, uh, you know, it's the same exactly. idea. Yeah. So now we have Jenkins and it, I mean, maybe it's doing something useful for you. That's fine. Or, or GitHub Actions or Bamboo or whatever. I don't care which which tool it is. Maybe it's being useful. But unless you are integrating your code at least once a day, twice a day, 10 times a day per developer, you're not doing continuous integration because continuous integration by definition is doing integration continuously. If you have a four month old pull request that you integrate once every four months, I'm sorry, there's nothing continuous about that at all. <laughs> that seems reasonable. Yeah. Yes, I think the, the key point there is that the tool is just one of multiple steps in the workflow that give you the desired outcome. It's not, the, the tool is not the desired outcome itself. Right. And what the tool does is it enables you to automatically run tests for every change you make, which yeah. is valuable. Although, technically speaking, you could do that locally on your own workstation before you, before you merge. So you don't technically need a CI tool to do CI. If you're on a small enough team and you're all disciplined, you know, you could do CI without a CI tool at all, 
But we've, as an industry or as a sort of collective consciousness, we've come to the idea that you install the tool and now you have CI. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm guilty. I have been guilty of this. I try not to anymore. But in the past, I used to just talk about CI as a tool. I said, you know, configure your CI to do this. And like, that's actually, and then I came to realize that's not actually what CI is. CI is a practice. I like the way that you defined it earlier is uh, it's the behavior, not the thing. And mm-hmm. I think that's probably the best way to sum it up. And that, you know, it's so it's not the having the CI CD. It's the behavior of you are doing testing and some manner of quality assurance on your code to make sure that when you have a change, you're not breaking, you know, you're not breaking your previous product yep. or code base. Jillian, what are you, what are yours? Do you have a favorite anti-pattern or cargo cult? I find in my line of work, a lot of times it's like buying things, you know, especially people who have a lot of budget and then being like, oh, we're doing this. Um, I suppose another one would be like, yeah, it is, it is a lot of DevOps kind of stuff. So trying to do like this analysis as a service kind of thing, but then not actually having anything to check your SLAs. And so what I mean by that is that I work with some biotech companies and people send them data. And then the idea is the data gets analyzed and then it should be sent back within a certain amount of time. And then that's where the SLAs come in. And like the the whole sort of policy behind the SLAs is like, well, you know, we'll, we'll, it works most of the time. We'll just hope that it works and that nobody ever calls us on it. And, and so I would think that would be a part of your DevOps and a part of your deploying any kind of system. So if you're deploying, it's kind of similar to a CI CD when you have the workflow management systems, you have uh, your SLAs and all those kind of things integrated in there. It's more, I think that's a little bit more data engineering rather than DevOps, but I'm kind of always between those two worlds anyways. One thing that annoys me sometimes is the, the habit a lot of us have of building our own when we could just pay someone or, or buy a service, buy something off the shelf. Sort of the, you, you mentioned buying things, and that made me think of the opposite version of that, which is we need a we need a log monitoring system. So let's spend six months building one rather than just paying somebody to do log stacks for us or whatever. <laughs> Especially if you're a small company, it could be a huge waste of effort uh, to, to invest the time. I worked for a company a few years ago who decided to host GitLab internally, which was a huge mistake. <laughs> so much easier just to pay pay the subscription fee to GitLab or to GitHub or to whoever and let their engineers uh, handle the upgrades and the backups and all that stuff for you. Yeah, I have some pretty strong feelings about all that kind of thing now. Like uh, like if, I, if I'm working with people, it's kind of a red flag at this point. If there's a service that you could pay for and it's not like, anything that I wouldn't consider to be obscenely expensive for the amount of funding that they have. And they won't do it because they want to save like a hundred bucks a month or something yeah. like that. That's just, I don't know. It just doesn't make any sense. Like it, it doesn't math, you guys. It doesn't work. Yeah, exactly. yeah, I would say another one is to be on uh, the new shiny. I guess it's not so much an anti-pattern as it is a uh, psychological shiny object syndrome. But we have a system and it's perfectly fine, but we need to change to the new system because that's the new hotness. So, you know, having people that have uh, like web servers and things in the AWS world that work perfectly well on LightSail, they're like, you know, they're fairly small applications. They don't require huge amounts of logging and monitoring. If they go down, like it's not a big deal. Uh, but then all of a sudden somebody somewhere will be like, well, we need to go to Kubernetes because, you know, all of these things that they don't they don't actually need, they don't need. Uh, you know, that amount of scalability, they don't have, I don't know, they don't need to integrate with the secrets manager, they're not persisting any data, which I would always argue that you should never be doing in Kubernetes anyways, <laughs> all this kind of stuff, but just because like, well, these people over here are using Kubernetes, and they're doing cool things with it. And it's like, but do you do you really need that for this, you know, for this particular application? 
So that's you just so you know what? Maybe Kubernetes is my anti pattern. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you didn't say it, I was going to. <laughs> I mean, I love Kubernetes, but only for the right right problems. I found myself kind of moving away from Kubernetes lately. It's like it's so cool when it works, but like sometimes it's just such a pain to get working. And I've noticed with a lot of the kind of things I was doing, AWS is starting to have enough like managed services that I only really need Kubernetes for like a few things. And if I could get nicer auto scaling on LightSail, I might be able to ditch it entirely. It's going to be a brave new world for me. Oh, I might get some hate mail about that one, though, being on a DevOps show and being like, I don't want to do Kubernetes anymore. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's still popular. To, I, I think there's still a wave of people who've never used Kubernetes who like to hate it. So you're just on the on the bleeding edge of the post-Kubernetes uh, haters. <laughs> well, it really seems to be one of these frameworks like you got you got to be like all in on and using it almost yeah. I want to say like almost daily to really keep up with all the changes and kind of keep uh, the mental oh. headspace or maybe like I'm just getting yeah. old and stupid. But and you know, it's like a very distinct possibility over here. Oh, the memory gets worse by the day. But like, I just have a tough time keeping up with Kubernetes. So now I'm starting to wonder maybe that's maybe that's the other anti pattern is having like uh, frameworks that are so complicated it's hard to keep up on i don't know i can't quite well formulate that one so you touched on another topic that is a popular anti-pattern you mentioned secret management how many times have you stored a password in git or an api key way too often yeah exactly (laughs) yeah accidentally or on purpose well let's (laughs) start with let's start with on purpose and then we'll move to accidentally (laughs) yeah on purpose very infrequently before i learned that that was a bad thing to do yeah I started with a company early last year that had hired an outsourced or, or an offshore agency to do some development work for them. And they had all their API keys sort of Git. So one of my tasks was to move them out of Git and recycle those, you know, you know expire the old ones and build, uh, create new API keys or, or whatever, whenever possible. So it's a really easy thing to do. And it's even intentionally, I think it's easy to do like, oh, yeah, only two people have access to this repository. We, we we never publish it. I get the temptation, but it's it's a bad idea. Yeah. What about with private repos, though? I'm still good there, right? I, my is, opinion is is, 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 is it hosted on your machine. Is it air gapped? How private? No, is like it? in a private GitHub repo. What what are our feelings? Yeah, on Yeah. Wait. That? Do you own Microsoft? <laughs> no, but I kind and, of assume unless you own the infrastructure it's running on, it's not really private. Yeah. So yeah, that's my that's answer a, there. It's a good point. Yeah, I, I agree with Jonathan on that. Even in private repos, I think it's a bad idea because that data lives in a place that's outside of your control that ultimately will get hacked at some point. And so when that happens, it's just going to make, you're going to have a lot of cleanup to do anyway, but that's one thing that you just won't have to clean up if you don't have those stored there. Hey folks, I'm here with JD from Raycon. You know, JD, we were talking just a second ago about empathy, and it seems like a common concept within the programming community. And yet, when we're building features for customers, a lot of times we call it done when it passes CI, deploys, and doesn't give us errors. And that really doesn't seem very empathetic when it comes to our customers, because we're not looking at what they're doing. Do you have thoughts on this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, until until your code actually hits the customer, um, you don't really know if it's any good. Uh, you know, everybody uses things in so many different weird and wonderful ways. You can only really debug in production. Um, yeah, I've been there. It's old, done. Yeah. It's not done. Oh, crap. It's not done. 
<laughs> I got to go fix it. Now it's done. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And when we see things like error reports flowing into Raygun, right. you know, a lot of the time it's things where you just kind of go, oh, that was a configuration that as a developer, mm -hmm. I, I didn't think could exist, but actually here's an example. And so it's connecting that code to customer and your development team through to real users and their experiences, which to your point, builds real empathy and the best software teams care a lot about how their customers are experiencing their software. Right. It's kind of the feedback from the app, but it's also kind of this meta feedback as we do better, we tend to get less of this negative input back from our customer, which really does reflect empathy. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think to your point earlier about CICD pipelines, like we've done an amazing amount of work as an industry to automate getting to prod really fast. But if you mm -hmm. really want to go super fast, you need to close that loop with real-time feedback from prod back to the dev team. And that allows them to do things like fail forward and just do, you know, really leverage that investment in CICD and, and it can turn into a real superpower. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to encourage you folks Folks, yeah, set up your CICD, but then go sign up for Raygun. They'll actually give you a free trial and you can get it at raygun.com. And even if it is private, and even if you're 100% trust GitHub or whoever's hosting your data, who else has access to that repo? I mean, I mean, if it's only you and your laptop is encrypted or whatever, maybe you're fine. But you know, if you're a small company or even a large company and you have employees working on this code, do you know that all of their laptops are secure and safe and that those credentials won't be stolen if their laptop is left in a taxi cab or or someone installs malware on their on their device can they get to those passwords you know there's there's so many ways to compromise those passwords yeah and you know years ago it used to be pretty common when a new employee came that they were given a company issued laptop that you could control but a lot of companies nowadays are moving to a a bring your own device model. You know, if you got a laptop that you want to use, that's great. You want to use your phone, that's great. And at that point, whenever, whenever you have employee turnover, that data that you once considered to be controlled data is now uncontrolled data because it lives with oh. someone outside of your organization. And even if you do have a lockdown system, I, I promise you that there are people who are copying the data off of your work controlled devices somehow. Maybe not maliciously. I mean, it's very common to just, you know, I, I want to work from my personal laptop today or I want to, my work laptop is at the office and I'm sitting at home watching Netflix, but I want to try something. I'm going to find a way to get those files on my on my personal laptop. So, and that's to say nothing of the malicious actors who maybe are angry at the company or, or have some other motive to, to copy that data. Yeah. Yeah, we'll just leave like USBs around. Did you guys ever read about that? I forget the exact story, but uh, somebody, some company wanted to hack some other company. And so they just left like boxes of uh, of like USB sticks around and, you know, hoped that eventually somebody would plug it into their mm. company laptop, which of course they did because people were like, ooh, free, free USB, USB sticks. sticks. Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember who that was, but I remember hearing that story. Yeah, it was an interesting one. So what yeah, about team about, structure? Uh, I don't know if it's... Okay, yeah, let's do that one. Yeah, so team structure as an anti-pattern without without going into the topic we've talked about in the past, you know, that DevOps is not a job. It's a thing that you do. Yeah, but, but like having a DevOps team or renaming a DevOps team or renaming a team to DevOps. Oh, that's that's a great one. Yeah, so we have our, our dev team and our admin team and whatever. And we just heard about DevOps. Let's just rename admin team to dev team to DevOps, right? That that's an anti-pattern for sure. Yeah, I've there's a great. I'll, I'll I'll put a link in the show notes. There's a great chart from the authors of Team Topologies about when it is and isn't appropriate to call your team DevOps. 
<laughs> and uh, you know, the le- I think the left hand side is a whole bunch of anti patterns for these are so called DevOps teams that are wrong. And and one of them, my favorite one, which I, I've I've seen a couple times. You have your dev team, you have your operations team, you hear about DevOps. So these guys aren't cooperating enough. So what we need to do is create a DevOps team that sits between them and helps them cooperate. <laughs> yeah, been there, done that. I'm like, come on, guys. The whole idea of DevOps is to get rid of silos, not add another one. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a big anti-pattern. And there's several others. Like I said, I'll put put the link in the show notes so you can look at that. It's a good good, uh, reference to see if you're, which, if you have a team called DevOps, which side do you fall on? Hopefully not the chat ops side. I think, you know what, that's the hill that I'm preparing to die on, was that I saw like chat ops recently listed as a thing. And then, yeah, just no. No, I realized there's a couple, there was a contract that I worked on recently where they must have like really decided that this was a good idea because literally everything wound up in Slack. So like every time you made a GitHub commit or I don't, there were just all kinds of places that wound up in Slack and people were actually like expecting for me to keep on Slack as like a, you know, like a mode of I'm getting stuff done. Not just, not just like real time people chatting, asking questions, sending stupid memes around, whatever. But like it was actually supposed to be like a thing I was paying attention to where there was context and list of things that I was supposed to be doing. And I'm not doing that. You know what? I'm not. Let's call that an easy pattern too. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't mind, I don't mind Slack or any real time chat program as long as it's optional at any given moment. I've worked at companies where where the only place company announcements happened was on Slack. That was terrible. You know, if you want to know when uh, when the next round of pay raises are coming out, you have to watch your Slack. No, that's not how this was supposed to work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I think I like the word real time in there. If it is real time, like literally, you know, message pops up and it could go away. Like as soon as I read it and it wouldn't make any difference to my life whatsoever, that's fine. Anything persisting in Slack is just, it's a hard no for me. And so chat ops is the anti-pattern, the ultimate anti-pattern. I think that reminds me of another anti-pattern that I hadn't even thought of, but it's one that I'm pretty, uh, pretty adamant on. And that's alerts. Like when, when do you alert? And my philosophy on that is the only time it's acceptable to send an alert out, whether that's via PagerDuty or Slack or whatever alerting mechanism you use, is if someone needs to drop what they're doing and responding to it. Otherwise, it sh- it shouldn't be an alert. I agree. Yeah, and I've I've learned that the hard way. <laughs> Why did you get alerts at like and- two in the morning for nothing that was important? Yeah, created by me. <laughs> <laughs> That's always what hurts the most, like it, when it's me doing the stupid thing that messes up my life, because then like I have to take, I have to actually take some responsibility and see where it goes from there, as opposed to just blaming others. Right. It, it, it hurts important. a little worse. It hurts a lot I think it's also worse. important to keep in mind the quantity of alerts you have. I mean, if you're getting 25 alerts a day, even if you really should be dropping everything to fix them, you're just going to get fatigued and you're going to start ignoring them, right? Yeah. So, you know, yeah, it's important to make psychological sure psychological effect there. Yeah. Make sure you're only learning for truly important things. I mean, like I said, even if they are truly important, like let half of the important things drop <laughs> if you have to until you're at a point where you can actually respond. You know, having having and it's, the same is true with like error logs. If you log if you log errors and you're and you're looking at them in, say, Sentry or something and you have thousands or millions of them, then they mean nothing. Right. They mean nothing. Only log the things that you care about. Only alert about things that need immediate action. And, you know, this, this same principle of don't overwhelm yourself with information. 
applies at so many different areas of, of DevOps. Yeah, and I think if if the alert volume it really is that high, then it's time to it's time just as an organization to stop what you're doing, organize a war room, and everyone focuses on finding the root cause and resolving that. Exactly. Yeah, that definitely lends itself to uh, there are bigger issues happening here than right. You know than what is immediately apparent. How about uh, this is one that we talked about last week actually a little bit with uh, Jillian and me and and uh, Dave. But uh, the mean time to recovery is a big topic uh, these days. And Dave made a pretty compelling argument that mean time to recovery is a silly <coughs> metric to be monitoring. Instead, we we should focus on the time to recovery perhaps. But but the mean. You know, taking an average of that, uh, it's kind of silly. And, and the example he gave, I love it, was if you ask your fire department, what's your mean time to response, for example? And they give you an average that includes getting cats out of trees and five alarm fires. What number, what does that number mean? It means nothing. <laughs> so you need to be comparing like things when you're taking an average. And when you're talking about mean time to recovery across an organization, you're not comparing like things at all. You're comparing how long did it take to to recover from the deleted database that happened, and also how long did it take to recover from the oops typo that took five minutes to fix. Yeah, that that makes good sense. That feels like it comes back into part of your incident management policy or incident management procedure in determining the impact and severity of events, and then tracking metrics per impact and severity category. Right. Yeah, I think that would be a big improvement. And I feel like very few organizations actually break it down to like, here's our response time for like, I, I usually set it up to impact and severity as a combination. Each unique combination comes up with an overall score of one to five, like a category one, category two. And each category of incident has its own SLA and its own communication protocols as well. Like for a category one, you call the CEO, you know, for a category three, you know, maybe send an email to your sales reps so they can let your high profile customers know. I like that. That ties back into the uh, behavior driven as well. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think I can think of any more. We did the rolling your own technology because the very well accepted technology has, you know, 90% of the features that you want, but doesn't have the other you know, 5% that you don't even especially need. Uh, we could keep talking forever about secrets, I guess. Please don't roll your own secrets manager, everybody. Like, if oh, I could just no. send out, you know, kind of like a public service announcement to the world, <laughs> please just don't do that. Don't it's write your good. own encryption it's libraries either. Go around. Hmm? Don't write your own encryption libraries either. No, no. Closely related topic. <laughs> I think authentication oh, and authorization is in that same category as well. Yeah, yeah. This one might be a little more controversial, so I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Rolling a Docker image for production that's not based off of Scratch, would you consider that an anti-pattern? So you mean building a Docker image from someone else's Docker image? Yeah, or possibly even just Alpine or, or Ubuntu or whatever. But when you do that, you, well, so there's two main reasons I can think of not to do that. One is all the security holes that might be in that image that you aren't aware of. They're now your security holes, too. And the second is uh, whenever you use a Docker image that includes a shell, you're you're inviting someone to log into production via a shell. Wait, is that a bad thing? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the first thing that I always ask, like anytime I learn a new technology is like, all right, all right, like whatever. How do I just get a shell? Right. <laughs> <laughs> served, served me well over the years. Even when I learned Kubernetes, that was like the first thing I'm like, uh, like, how do I just get on here and get a shell? 
Um, so, I'm not sure that I should be allowed on the show anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm personally, I'm okay with using as my base image, like Debian or something like that, mm-hmm. pinned to a specific version and then adding adding my whatever I need on top of that. And there's probably a few select vendors, you know, like like for running Elasticsearch, I would probably just use their Docker image. Mm-hmm. But I, th- I think where I think it starts falling into an anti-pattern is using using like some image that you find in Docker Hub that was built by someone that you don't know, or on the same token, you know, finding some dude's Docker file in a GitHub repo that pulls from some other Docker image that you can't identify or track down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, the that, ones yeah. that uh, just like arbitrarily copy stuff. So now you can do like the, you know, you can have like multiple base images that you derive from in Docker and mm-hmm. you can just like be like arbitrarily copying stuff back and forth between them. That makes me real nervous. I won't use any of those. I don't want to call out any names of anybody who's doing that. If you don't want people who do that, just go use Bitnami images. They're my favorite, and they have security scans. They have security True. scans right there. They're public. I just go use them. Yeah, yeah plus one for Bitnami images. I don't think I've ever like actually built a Docker image totally from scratch. I've always been starting at least from an operating system, and I can't really think of so any reason a- why I would, but... <laughs> What I usually do, especially for, this is really easy with Go services. It's more complicated if you have something with a lot of runtime dependencies. But what I usually do is I do a multi-stage build. So I build my service based off of the, the latest Golang image, build my service, and then I do a from scratch and I just copy the binary into that. And maybe I copy SSL certificates or whatever else is, is minimally necessary to get it running. And then I have a, a, a Docker image that has like five files in it. And that's all. So there's literally no, no possibility of SSHD running in there or somebody getting a shell to it or anything like that. But it, like I said, it, it is more complicated if you're trying to do something with Python, for example, or or anything that has more complicated runtime dependencies. Uh, it's, it's not as easy. Yeah. Yeah, it's really easy to introduce security vulnerabilities and not know what they are. That happened to me a couple of months ago. Actually, the Python package supervisor apparently introduces a really big security vulnerability, but it wasn't actually like pointing out to me, okay, this is the package that did that. So I just had to uh, play whack-a-mole until I figured out which <laughs> one it was. But that was definitely one of those images that was like, you know, it had like multiple layers of, you know, things being copied back and forth. And it was it was very difficult to figure out what exactly was happening in there. So the whole thing had to be like reverse engineered anyways. So yeah, I could see that being uh, being an anti-pattern. If, like if you're not really under, if you're using a tool and you're really not understanding what's happening underneath the hood, at least to some extent, that's, I mean, probably not good. And, and we, we could expand that to far more than Docker images, right? I mean, even NPM packages have been targeted <laughs> lately and... <laughs> GitHub NPM actions, like anything, anything where you're running someone else's code can be dangerous. Yeah. What was the Java vulnerability? The the log one with the logging? Log4j. Yeah, that one. That ruined my life for like a couple weeks there. That was on right. all the Docker images. All of them. Oh, yeah. Right. That was the day we learned Java is not a dead language. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then I really had some snarky comments for the Java people that day. <laughs> See, your lives are pretty terrible. Maybe Java is the other anti-pattern. <laughs> I could rant about Java for hours, but I'm not going to on this show because I don't want to. I don't want half of our listeners to go away. Yeah, that's well. I don't know. I don't think there is a whole lot of overlap between DevOps and Java. Like you got to be oh, careful I around the like, Python and Ruby people. people. I'm, I'm, 
I'm sure there were a lot of people who work at Java shops and they probably enjoy it. Yeah, because Java, like there's things that built that are built and currently running the world in Java right now that rank up there with COBOL, where the, the pain of trying to move that to something else is just not worth it. Yeah. And not only the pain, but like it's working fine in Java. So why right. back to one of the points you made earlier, Jillian, why why would you move that if it's working just fine? Well, at some point I guess it's a bit of a different issue, but when you get software that like becomes so old that nobody ha- knows how to use it, then you get to the nobody actually really knows what this what this is doing or uh, how it's working underneath the hood. And so someday something will go wrong, and that will be very very bad. Yeah, Java is still what a lot of universities are teaching in their, their CS courses. Yeah, but the universities are are always twenty years behind anyway. I mean, they yeah, were teaching basic when Java was new, right? <laughs> Mine was C++ and Perl. Yeah. I learned assembly and C++. C, C++ and, and assembly when I was in university in the late 90s. I never went to college, so. Except for this cool party one time, but I don't think I get credits for that. I think you should. <laughs> I didn't get many credits anyway. I dropped... I, but the, the the class that probably stood to teach me the most, data structures and algorithms, I got an incomplete on because I stopped going to class. Because <laughs> I, I think I think nine a.m. or ten a.m. was just too early for for twenty year old me. Right. <laughs> then I just dropped dropped the uh, dropped out entirely. Wanted to finish college. It was it was high school that was the problem for me. So you know, I have a college education, but I didn't finish high school. <laughs> Cool. What are the any patterns, or or shall we start to wrap up? I don't have any more that are popping into head, into I, my I head. Mean, I think there's more that can be dug into on the side of like if you don't, if you really, really don't know what it's doing underneath the hood, that probably means some bad things. But I can't, I can't think of any other specific cases besides the uh, very weird Docker files and like maybe some legacy software. That's it. That's all I got. Yeah, seems like a good stopping point. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and, in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships, and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Who has some picks? I do. I can go first. I have two picks this week. So the first one is this book I've been reading it's called The Sovereign Individual, Mastering the Transition to the Information Age by James Dale Davidson and Lord William Rees Mogg. And it's actually been super cool. They are comparing like how civilization changed as we w- entered the agricultural agricultural age and then the industrial age and using those two as templates to compare what it means for us transitioning into the information age. It's a book that was written in the late 90s. So reading it now is really interesting because you get like a couple of decades of seeing where they were right and where they were wrong. But (laughs) it's pretty, pretty interesting read. 
definitely worth checking out. The other pick I have, I hinted at this a couple of weeks ago. So I'm launching a new project that may be of particular interest to our listeners because we all know that the resume is dead, right? It's kind of worthless, but we don't have anything better. So I'm actually launching. What's that? I didn't want to derail you. I still get asked for it sometimes, though, and then I have to go like resurrect it because I haven't actually looked at it in, you know, like two years and it has stuff from... Yeah, it's because I only update it like once every two years because that's how often I get asked. I just tell them I'll fax it over. (laughs) (laughs) If they tell me they don't have a fax machine, I'll go, well, there you go. But no, it is dead, but we are still dependent on it. And the part of the reason in my belief is because we don't have anything modern to replace it. And that's what I'm building is a system that allows you to show what skills you have from a trusted network. So who, you know, the people, the people you work with know what skills you have, you know what skills they have, and we can build this network of trust to demonstrate who has current and skills that are meaningful enough that someone's willing to personally sign off on those. So that's what I'm building. It's called trustified.io. But one of the other things I'm doing along with that is I've got years and years experience of experience of um, working with startups and launching businesses and making things fail in spectacular, glorious fashion. And so I'm actually going to build this in public. So if you go to trustified.io, there's a mailing list that I'll send out weekly emails showing you the architecture that um, I'm putting it on, how the project plan is laid out, some of the code that I'm writing in it, how I'm going to build it in a scalable fashion, the financial model for supporting this application, marketing to test it out and see how it resonates with the the target customer. So it's a combination of um, watching me do DevOps, writing code, marketing, financial planning, solving business problems, all of the above. And hopefully when it's all said and done, we can officially burn our resumes. So trustified.io launch date is going to be July 11th. Cool. I'll go sign up. Cool. Those are my picks. Well, I've got a couple picks today. As we talk about occasionally on this show, I have a one, almost one and a half year old son. And when he was about to be born, we debated, should we get a baby monitor? And what features should we get in a baby monitor? And I did a little research and I found something that uh, isn't advertised at all as a baby monitor, but it works perfectly for the job. And I just ordered a second one yesterday. That's how, how much I like it. It's the Google Nest Cam, indoor cam marketed as like a security camera but it's perfect for this because it it switched its video obviously it's a camera but it also records sound and it has a night mode so after dark it turns into this uv thing so you get the sort of black and white image so it works 24 hours a day and basically we're as we're moving him into his new room we need a camera there and also one in our room so we can watch him depending which room he's in so i recommend the google nest cam as a baby monitor or if you need an indoor security camera for any reason it's cool my second pick is is a book that we probably talked about before it's an old book but it's a good book it's called continuous delivery and it's right up to devops alley it's by uh, jess humble and dave farley i'm late to the game in reading it Uh, i just read it last week I didn't read every page because some of it was a little bit outdated, talking about like early versions of Java and in VB.net and things like that. It's an old <laughs> <book>. <laughs> but aside from those language 
particular parts that are outdated. It's it, the, the concepts are still uh, incredibly valid. If you're not already doing continuous integration, the behavior and continuous delivery, the behavior, uh, it's a good book to help you sort of get, wrap your head around the concepts. That's just installing Jenkins, right? Exactly. <laughs> and that's it. You're done. You don't, you don't even need to log into it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Jillian, any picks from you today? Yep. So I'm going to throw a pick out there. The AWS Parallel Cluster is specifically version 3, which has been out for a little bit, but I only started to dig into it recently. And they did some pretty cool things with the version 3. In particular, they have this uh, wrapper around the EC2 image builder pipeline, which allows you to build custom Amy's. And it means you can build a custom Amy to be used in your HPC cluster that can be backed from like anything else. So lately I've had all these crazy build matrices going, uh, for myself and for my clients on having like Slurm compliant Amy's that are based off of like all the different deep learning images that are on AWS. So the, you know, deep learning, the GPU one, GPU PyTorch, GPU TensorFlow two, and all these kind of cool things. And I'm just, I'm pretty excited about that because you can, you can have like up to 10 custom Amy's in your Slurm cluster at any given time. Slurm is an HPC scheduler that you can use. So I just think, I just think that's like especially cool. And, uh, I'm pretty into trying that out. They also integrate with this like a nice desktop virtualization. I think it's called like DVC or something that I didn't even really know was possible because I get kind of uncomfortable when I'm, you know, far away from the terminal. I'm like, oh no, where's my terminal and my make files? But I do have a couple of clients that do have at least some desktop applications that they need. So that'll be cool to go try out and go do cell painting and protein folding and whatnot. And then, uh, oh, I've also been getting into another project lately called, uh, DVC. So instead of the other one, which makes my that those two, by the way, make my dyslexic brain extremely unhappy. This one is data versioning control. And recently, or I think somewhat recently, anyways, they added this really nice web interface to it. And I really like tools that, uh, you know, kind of make that extra effort to have interfaces on top of them, because I just feel like that's a lot more accessible for people getting into tech who maybe aren't so comfortable with coding yet, or maybe they never want to become comfortable with coding. I don't know. And it has this really nice interface to allow you to track your experiments. And it does this kind of Git like, like sort of Git like workflow, but specifically for data. So if you've ever heard of the Git flow model, you know, where you have the different branches for features and bug fixes and things like that. So it has that for data, which has been a really, really difficult problem to solve in the kind of data science space. And people have tried to solve it in different ways. I think Git had a project called Git LFS, which is Git large file storage, which like, just never really quite hit the mark. But this one integrates really nicely with S3 and S3 you can do, you know, like versioning and backups and you can automatically archive things to Glacier and you can set up lifecycle alerts and all these other kind of things that you need to have with data. Uh, so I just think it's really interesting. And, you know, maybe my next title after I have burned uh, all my DevOps bridges is going to be data ops. I don't know. We'll have to see. I'm down for any tool that lets me work the word slurm into a conversation. Yeah. I mean, that's just a super cool sounding word. I don't, I don't know what's up with the HPC people and why they can't have more reasonable names. But yeah, Slurm is the name of the, (laughs) the most common HPC scheduler out there. Slurm, Torque, PBS, Moab. Those are the other ones. Nice. Oh, and then the last one is uh, my shameless self promotion. I've been working, still working on BioAnalyze. It is coming along pretty well. I had to 
you know, maybe get a little bit more realistic with some of my goals. So it's a lot more like Terraform modules and cookie cutters now, although I am starting to work on some nice web interfaces and things for clients to be able to use it without actually having to write code, which we talked about a little bit earlier. And I will soon have a new documentation website up, docs.bioanalyze.io, and I've been playing around with tools for that. I think I'm probably just going to stick to Sphinx because it does all the things that I need for it to do, but maybe I'll go check out Hugo or something as well. Awesome. Right on. Well, I guess that brings us to the end of an exciting adventure in DevOps. So, dun, dun, dun. thanks for Until listening. Next week. And come back next week. We'll see you all later. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more.